When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are now in the Corner Booth Podcast, a sports podcast from Billy Up Sports and the Billy Up Podcast Network. Here's your host, Jared Clay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Corner Booth Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Jared Klim. Today is the first ever Sunday special. It is when I sit down and have a long-form conversation with the various guests in sports. This week's guest was Tony Fiorentino. He was an assistant coach and member of the Miami Heat organization from the very start of their run in 1988. Me and Tony sat down and talked, had good conversations from everything from the NBA, WNBA, and everything in between. So without further ado, here is Coach Tony. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest today. We are joined by former Miami Heat assistant coach and broadcaster and Miami Soul assistant coach, Tony Fiorentino. Tony, how are you doing today? What's up, Jared? How are you? I'm good. And all of my uh, all the Corner Booth crew uh, is welcome to have you as well. They, are, of course, are not here today. It's me running the solo, ladies and germs. But to start off, a little introduction about Tony. He helped with the Miami. He's been around the Miami Heat organization since the get-go. I'm talking 1988 when the expansion team happened. He was also involved with the Miami Soul, a uh, the WNBA sister team. Is unfortunately we're only around for about three years. So, uh, and he also has been a broadcaster with the Heat for a very long time, up to the 2017-2018 season, and has been running the basketball camps with the community in Miami through the Heat for over 20 years, and is now starting a new campaign with an anti-bullying campaign. And we'll talk about the, all of that. But first off, Tony, I just want to talk about what was it like starting off with an expansion team in like, you know, the last years of like, you know, the, the, the Showtime Laker versus, you know, the Celtics and the Jordan era. You guys were starting out in probably one of the biggest eras of the NBA of transition. What was it like starting with an expansion team? Well, I had been two years removed as a high school coach. You know, I was at Iona College for two years after coaching at Mount Vernon High School in New York, where I'm from. And so it was the first year, it was the first time experience for me. So I had never been in the NBA before. And so um, when the Heat started, there, uh, we started the same year in 88 as the Charlotte Hornets did. And we had a different approach than Charlotte. Charlotte decided they were going to go with veterans and try to win right away. While the Miami Heat philosophy was to go start from the bottom and build it up. We had six rookies on wow. that initial 1988 team. Ron Rothstein was the head coach. Mm-hmm. And so we were developing players, not expecting to win. You know, the, fir- the first three years, we won 15, 18, and 24 games. So it was very difficult on the head coach. Myself, you know, I was first time in the NBA. I didn't know what it was like to win on this level. So... It was fine for me. It just you go in, you do your job every day. You're playing against the best players in the world, 
as you mentioned, all those guys were in their heyday. The Lakers were coming off two consecutive NBA championships at that point, back-to-back with Pat Riley as the coach. Uh, Michael Jordan was coming into his own, Larry Bird. And my dogs agreed with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so when you're talking about, you know, starting young, and I, I, like, that whole, my favorite team, the Timberwolves, didn't even start until around that time a little later. And later. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, a year later. Uh, for those of people who are not familiar with a lot of the players who start out, because I think when you look at the Heat back in the day, the players that everyone remembers are Mourning and Tim Hardaway. Did you get a chance to see any of those players when they started out work? They started out with the organization? Of course. I worked with them. I was four years on Pat Riley's staff. Yeah. So I was an assistant coach. Um, I was an assistant coach for seven years before Pat Riley came. Okay. I was on his staff for four years, and we brought uh, Pat Riley got the job maybe the second day of September, mm-hmm. and then right before the season started, he traded Glenn Rice, Matt Geiger to Charlotte for Alonzo Mourning, and and now we had our centerpiece, and then that February, right before the deadline, he traded for Tim Hardaway, and so uh, the, the year later is when we won 61 games. With, with those guys, you know, P.J. Brown, um, Dan Marley, Keith Askins. We had a heck of a team, you know, anchored by Alonzo Mourning in the middle. So uh, I was part of that for, for, for four years. You know, it's so funny to me. You're, you're like me being it. I love sports history. It's one of my big interests. And you're bringing up guys that like, you know, I'm trying to remember in my head, like Tim Hardaway came over from Golden State and Alonzo Mourning started his career in Charlotte. And it's great. And that was the first like year the, the Heat were like the big deal. Like, you know, and you go back to how the NBA was in the 90s and when Pat Riley started. And I'm going to ask you about him later because he's one of my favorite personalities in sports. Just the way he does business. It's just something you admire as somebody who watches a team succeed and how he's built the Heat up since he got the job there. But a quick comment here. And you've seen how the NBA has changed clearly over the past 20 something years. And. You said Alonzo Mourning was the centerpiece for that uh, for that team. Have did you notice it as you you started getting up and up from '88 to when you left the team to join the Miami Soul? Did you see the league start to evolutionize and possibly away from like a guy like Mourning when it was very back to the basket center? That was the way it started. You know, Mourning was of course was known for his amazing defense, and Tim Hardaway, you know, just being one of the prolific point guards. Uh, did you start to see like a, the NBA start to change? Did you notice that a lot? Well, it's an interesting question. Pat Riley around 96, 97, maybe second, third year, something like that with the league, with the with the Heat. He said to Randy Fund, who was the general manager, I remember him saying this in, the, uh, in at LaSalle High School, where we had our base of operations at that time before the new arena was built, told uh-huh. him, look, the NBA is trending towards – Six, six to six, eight type players with long fibered muscles. That's what I want you to go out looking for from now on. And so Pat Riley saw the trend changing to those type of players. And so that that really, I think, in the, in the middle to late 90s, early 2000s, is when the league started to change uh, from uh, an, uh, a low post, feed the low post, you know, inside out type basketball to playing a more open type game with with uh, athletes with long arms and 
um, and, and not rely on uh, low post per se scoring, but uh, relying more on athletes and quickness and, and fast breaks and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, you're you're completely right because, you know, we saw the, the – I was around the time Michael Jordan was, you know, gaining his dominance from 91 through, you know, the 90s because basically he ran the league whenever he played. The Bulls always had a shot at winning the title. Also, you saw that was the beginning of Kobe Bryant's career, one of my favorite all-time players. Uh, but on the whole Pat Riley subject, and I, I said before I'm a huge admirer of Pat Riley, uh, you, you were there for his beginning. And you were with the organization still to this day doing things in various uh, areas. But how has Pat Riley evolved from just the coach that was coming from the Showtime Lakers to basically now being the big boss upstairs? Yeah, well, I, he wanted that. I think when he left the Knicks, he was looking for an owner like Mickey Harrison. He was looking for a situation where he wanted to have control of personnel. And he found it in the Miami Heat. Um, and, you know, I don't know if there's been a better owner, uh, coach, president. You know, he's got both titles or had both titles at the time. Uh, I don't know if there's been a better combination of owner and president coach and, and, and Mickey Harrison and Pat Riley over the years than in those two guys, because they they saw eye to eye on almost everything. They, the way they wanted to, to build a franchise, Mickey Harrison was looking for a winner. Um, you know, obviously he's built the, uh, the carnival cruise line into the best cruise line in the world. Oh yeah. And so he went out and got the best guy possible to run his franchise and Pat Riley gave him, gave him the president's title, um, kind of gave, gave him all of the things that he needed to create a, a, a championship caliber team. Um, you know, that team in, uh, in, uh, I think it was 96, 97, we won 91. We won 61 games that year. If it wasn't for Michael Jordan, we you know we might have won a championship with that team. That was a championship caliber team. But, yeah, the you know, names Jordan, you listed off. Oh, sorry. Jordan, yeah, Jordan beat everybody. So um, we would have had a chance to win the NBA championship if it wasn't for Michael Jordan. <laughs> we we could have competed with anybody but the Bulls. And yeah. so Pat Riley did his job. Um, and he still he continued to do it. You know, he came back in 2006. People don't remember this, but in December of 2005, Stan Van Gundy didn't want to coach anymore. So yeah. he, he quit. Pat Riley got back on the bench. And then in 2006, the Heat won the first championship with him as the coach. I remember with, that. With uh, Shaquille O'Neal yeah. and, you know, you, and, and Dwayne Gary Wade. Gary Payton was on the roster. That, Sorry. Yeah, Gary Payton, Dwayne Wade were on those that roster as well as yeah. like early in D Wade's career. <coughs> yeah, yeah, it was so, yeah, it was a great, great team. You know, it was so funny. They beat a very, it looked very overmatched Mavericks team that year, and I think that was the year um, before Dirk won his first MVP. But one thing about that team that always surprised me was that was the very first time I think a lot of people had seen Dwayne Wade in action and. One thing I always loved about Pat Riley was Pat Riley always seemed to kind of always make the smartest move before it became a problem. He, he, whether through his whole career, you could talk about the whole big three situation, which we'll talk about a little bit later when we talk about you know, you know your broadcasting career. But you know he made he got rid, rid, rid of LeBron before you know like everything started you know coming around with all the you know the, he wanted all his buddies to get paid and all, the whole thing with Clutch Sports and 
it just seems like Pat Riley is the gold standard of what executive should be. And you were completely on the point with that. I've, one thing I've noticed from covering sports, even from an amateur level, since I was like 10 years old, listening to radio and doing like mock broadcasting and stuff like that. The one thing I've always noticed about the Heat is they've never been a, there's never been a period at all since I've been alive. And I'm, yes, only 24 years old, but I've never heard of the Heat being a dumpster fire like some of these organizations have been known to be around the NBA or any other sport, really. And I think that comes down from Mickey and you get on to Pat Riley and the whole organization, I think, is just so well run. And that's one thing that's always impressive about Miami, especially being such a transient city with so much nightlife and so much going on. You associate with Miami, you think of the Hurricanes, which I am a very huge fan of. And then, you know, you go down to the Marlins with their whole, you know, their craziness and it's it's good to see that there's always one organization there. It's been a constant regardless. They've always been run well. So that's why one thing I always appreciated about the Heat. Well, that's but, what I mean about the owner and the uh, Pat Riley being on the same page. Oh, yeah. They both had a vision of what the Heat culture should be. And, um, you know, being on being with Pat Riley every day for four years, you see the genius every day. Mm-hmm. You know, he says things in passing that are revelations. And um, he, he's very... Um, organized in the way he feels things should be done. He sticks to his principles and the players have to, you know, give their, do their job. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when both the owner and the coach are on the same page and you've got the discipline, you've got the, you know, the, the expertise, it results in what you've seen, you know, from 2006 to 2013, mm-hmm. the Heat win the NBA finals five times and yeah. won three of them. And that was the, the the epitome of all of the work that Pat Riley had done from 95 when he got to the Heat to that point where the, 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 the developing the program, getting the right guys. You know, if Alonzo Mourning didn't have the kidney problem uh, in 2000, he would have been there maybe a little sooner. Oh, yeah. They had to deal with him being out a year or two. And he came back and he was part of that championship as well in 06. And so it, it's all a, it's all a. a, a a confirmation of the, um, the the commitment that both the owner and Pat Riley made. And that's just the gold standard of a solid organization. But so we're going to switch a little bit to a, your next stage of your career. When you were an assistant coach, you you joined your former uh, your former co- coworker Ron Rothstein over at the Miami Soul, which were a expansion team for the WNBA in 2000. Um, I I'm not going to lie to you. A guy like me, I didn't really grow up with much, even though the Connecticut Sun are right down the pipe. And I literally have like worked at UConn Husky women's games uh, and seen Gino and all his genius. But to it was, I didn't even know the Miami whole soul existed because they were only around for a short time. But talk, you want to talk about quickly about the difference in coaching between the WNBA and the NBA itself, besides, you know, men versus women. Well, first of all, the dub, the uh, Miami Soul was owned by the Miami Heat. So okay, yeah, they're sister organizations. Right? Yeah, we were owned, they were owned by the Heat. So um, they brought in Ron Rothstein, who, in my opinion, was the best coach and general manager in the in the WNBA. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, uh, the 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 um, what was what, what what was very good about it was Pat Riley allowed Ron Rothstein to run the program like he would an NBA team. Very organized. Ron was very good in getting players. Um, I think if we had, we were there three years, as you mentioned, if we yeah. had a fourth year, I think we would have won the championship. We were we really? had girls that were hurt. We had one girl, Elena Baranova, from Russia. She went she went back to Russia to play in the Olympics and didn't play that one year. 
and she was 6'5 and made the all-star team. She was going to come back. We had two lottery picks the following year. Cheryl Ford came out, uh, Carl Malone's daughter. Mm -hmm. I remember her very well. She won two championships with Ruth Riley, who we had, the center we had out of Notre Dame. Uh, They went to Detroit and won two championships. So I think we would have won a championship if we had one more year, one more summer of basketball. We had uh, Debbie Black was like one of the, they call it the Tasmanian devil. Hmm. She was unbelievable that, you know, very short girl that would play. I don't know if anybody played in. Ron Rossin has said this many times. He coached Isaiah Thomas. You know, he coached some of the bad boys. He said the toughest player he's ever coached was Debbie Black. So we really enjoyed coaching the women because they were so receptive to learning and playing hard and and just um just wanting to be better basketball players it was really one of the fun the, the most fun i've ever, maybe i've ever had coaching basketball and being back with ron rothstein who brought me to miami you know and we were friends in new york coaches yeah. in new york it was one of the most fun three years i had coaching basketball and i really appreciated the women just being receptive to us teaching them and working hard. That's that's awesome. Um, the WNBA itself, and I've noticed this over the past few years because I do follow women's sports to a certain extent. I grew up around women's basketball from Diana Taurasi all the way down to the Maya Moore and everyone in between being around the UConn women and everything else. And, I, you know, I do try to follow the sport. And one of my favorite players, Brittany Griner, who basically is a, a beast on the court. But – the WNBA in general, and I, I've no like, is there a way like the WNBA can initial like come up and initially possibly bring a team back to Miami or like you know expand on what it's got because the product isn't bad by any stretch. It's a good product. These girls work hard. They play basketball. They want it just as hard as the men do. Is there a way the, the WNBA can build on the momentum of the fact that these players work just as hard as the women do, and it could even come down to the same concept as the. Uh, women's national team for soccer where the, the the women work just as hard and the product's just as good well the problem in miami with the soul wasn't the uh attendance we, we i think we averaged about seven eight thousand a game which was right in the middle of the pack of the 16 yeah. teams at the time there were 16 teams in there mm-hmm. when we were there from 2000 to 2002 but the problem in miami is even though you know miami people look at miami and think it's one of the the, the, the leading media markets it's in, not uh, in the NBA. It's not. It's, I think it's right in the middle. You know, there's 30 NBA teams. I think Miami might be 15 or 16 considered a media market. You know, mm-hmm. that maybe not maybe even lower than that. And so the problem with the with the WNBA is the Heat didn't have any corporate sponsorship. If you're if you're if you're a corporation in Miami and you want to be associated with a with a with a sports team, you probably would at that time you'd go to the Dolphins, you'd go to the Canes, you'd go to the Marlins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'd go, you go to, you go to three or four or five different organizations before you would go to the soul. There was nothing left for the soul to tap into corporate wise. And yeah. that's the reason why the, the Miami soul met its demise. It wasn't because of the lack of interest. It just was the fact that Miami's not a big corporate area. South Florida is not a big corporate area and they couldn't, they, they, yeah. they couldn't support, you know, through corporations they, and, you know, no professional team can survive without corporate sponsorship. Oh, yeah, that's why they, ticket sales and TVs yeah. and all that. You know, the, the corporate sponsorship is what makes uh, pro, pro franchises survive. And that's why anywhere from NFL to Major League Baseball, you see these guys pump out in their stadiums like 
hundreds of luxury suites and boxes for corporations because that's how the meter moves. That's what. No doubt. Pays, yep, no doubt. Yeah. But that you know it's good. You know I liked hearing you say you really enjoyed coaching basketball with um, the Soul. And you know it's so funny because watching women's the watching women's game. I went to a school that had a Southern Connecticut a decent women's program. So honestly, those games were entertaining. And I knew a lot of the girls on the roster, and they had just as much desire to play as the men do. And you're right. Unfortunately, in small, a lot of markets, you're going to see that there's only a, a total amount of the pie that can go around from corporate sponsorships. And I think this is why some teams, even at the highest level in the NFL, struggle is because there's just not enough pie to go around with certain teams. And Miami, you said, is a very, I, I said before, is a very transient market. You know, you have a lot of vacation people coming down and out. It's a vacation town. And, you know, you have the Dolphins, who, you know, one of the most uh, very storied franchise. You have the Hurricanes, you know. I'm a huge Canes fan, so I'll tell you right now, they're a very storied college football team. And then you go to the Marlins, and you have the Heat. It's just not a lot to go around afterwards. But transitioning to being a broadcaster, like, how did you get involved with the Heat as a broadcaster after everything was said and done with uh, the Soul? Well, I had done a little bit of broadcasting as a high school coach in New York when my team wasn't playing in the, in the uh, tournament, postseason tournament, and I enjoyed it. So when I came to the Heat, the first three years I was here, I was an assistant. And then mm-hmm. Ron Rothstein was let go as the coach. Yeah. They kept me on as the uh, advanced scout. The uh, mm-hmm. uh, And so uh, an assistant coach. When, and I always had my eye on working with uh, Eric Reed, a good friend. I, yeah. wanted to, I wanted to stay in Miami. I had an opportunity twice. Um, I had offers twice over the years to go to different franchises, and I didn't leave. I, I loved the Miami franchise. I loved being in Miami, so I didn't go. So I wore different hats. Mm-hmm. When Pat Riley came, I sat down with him for 15 minutes. I didn't Obviously, I didn't know him. I, I knew him. He didn't know me. And I told him my overall goal was to be the, you know, Eric Reed's sidekick on TV. And so after four years as an assistant on his staff and then three years on Coach Rothstein's staff with the WNBA, I did one year of radio when Mike Fratello was the uh, color announcer. And then he went on to coach the uh, Memphis Grizzlies. Mm-hmm. And I moved up into his spot. And so for 15 years, Eric Reed and I were the broadcasters, TV broadcasters for the Heat. And it was through the championship years. You know, it was through the LeBron... Uh, Chris Bosch, Dwayne Wade championship years. So it was really fulfilling. Um, to me, I'm a little biased, but I think coaches make the best analysts because you can explain the game to a coach's eye. My job was to ha- elevate the fans' viewing of this through a coach's eyes. And when I'm watching football, I don't know much about football, and, and I really enjoy it when the color announcer points out little things that you didn't see in a play that makes it more sense, makes, makes it seem more sense. So that was my job for years as the color announcer for the heat. That, that is, I well one, I have a couple things there after that answer, but one, I completely agree about the little things about, you know, and coaches being the best broadcast teams because they notice the things that you don't see with your naked eye. Me growing up, I wanted to be a football coach. That was like my dream is to be an offensive coordinator for a team just never really materialized, but basically the broadcasting was the second was was a very close second to me, and I have fallen in love with this whole thing. But one thing I will say about broadcasting is that you know it's very it's an art. One you have to keep people entertained, and I did color commentary for Southern Connecticut football, 
And that's all. I, I never was. I never really had interest in being the main announcer, call play by play. But I would give the analysis. I say, look, this guy. I'm a football junkie. I watch film every day as like for fun. But basically, I like you know this guy here. He does a, a down block here, clears up the fullback to get to the linebacker, and all I go and. I'll have my the uh, the guy look at me next to me. And goes, dude, that was impressive. But like these guys aren't gonna be able to follow you. I'm like, I'm just trying to help, man. But talking about being through the championship years, and you were around some some of the biggest names the the NBA had seen for star power. You, you like you said, you Chris Bosh. You essentially witnessed Dwayne Wade mature from a young man out of Marquette to arguably one of the top five greatest shooting guards of all time, without question. You witnessed probably one of the top five best players of all time in LeBron James. Uh, you, of course, have been around Pat Riley, as we mentioned before, and Chris Bosh. Uh, and, you know, you saw the beginning of Eric Spolster's career, which I think was so interesting. I was going to ask you about him as well because his story is a very odd one from a coaching perspective. I heard whenever he came up, he was he was involved with videotaping, correct? Yes, he was a video coordinator when I was the assistant coach, and we knew right away that he was sharp. When one of the questions Pat Riley asked me when he came to the Heat, he wanted to know about the video coordinator. He says, is he a basketball coach learning videos, you know, the computers, or is he a computer guy learning? I said, no, no, he's a basketball man. You knew right away he was sharp. You know, one of our jobs was to uh, prepare the staff to prepare the team for the opponent. And so when I had a, when I had to scout a team and I had to put together a scouting report, I give it to Coach Bolster. I tell him what I would need on a video, uh, a little video that they would he would put together for the team. Mm-hmm. He always added a, a, a something that we didn't see that he saw in another tape. He used to watch games, other game tapes that we didn't see, and he always added important things to it. So you knew right away he could coach. You knew he had a basketball mind, and. The thing that, that people don't realize about him, they they have forgotten this, is the fact that he was the head coach two years before LeBron came. Yeah. And in, in those two years, in 9 and 10, 8, 9, and 9, 10, he, he had a team, two teams. Each team was full of one-year contracts. Yeah. Pat Riley was gearing up for 2010 to bring the three All-Stars together. Mm-hmm. Okay? And... Eric Spolster's teams played together unselfishly. They played hard. They made the playoffs both years. Mm-hmm. Very difficult to get a professional athlete to be unselfish in the last year of his contract because he wants to get another contract. Exactly. So the guy is more conscious of maybe scoring points, you know, maybe doing, you know, maybe taking shots when he shouldn't. But Eric Spolster and his staff did a great job of, uh, and so. You knew right then and there the man could coach. And then he was put in a very difficult position with the three All-Stars. We started out 9-8 and eight that first year, mm-hmm. and then we won the next 21 out of 22 games. Yeah, all, remember- of the, all of the negativeness when LeBron came from, from media and people around the country and not really disliking the fact that he left Cleveland, all of that burden fell on the Heat and, and Spolstra. But after that, that initial start, and then we won 21 out of 22 people kind of stopped chirping and stopped being negative. And then, uh, you know, they went on and won two championships out of the four mm-hmm. years LeBron was here. So I have a question for you personally as a broadcaster, because you looked at the whole big three situation from a, an angle that most of us did not see. <clears throat> now, for me, I was a sophomore in high school, and I got the news on my phone that Chris Bosh had signed with the Heat, oh, and LeBron, the decision. And 
as I got older, I understood why LeBron left, and I understand. And you know, as any NBA fan, I was a little upset. I'm like, crap, my team's never gonna have a shot. My Timberwolves were garbage anyway, so it didn't really matter. But I, you know, I was really like, I was like, oh man, now we're gonna see him win. And it was like the first time I'd really seen a super team actually be look like a super team, because you know, the even the Celtics with you know, oh, Allen and Pearson, my favorite player of all time, Garnett, they like you know they had that one year and then they got beat by Kobe. Basically. What was it like for a Miami broadcaster seeing all the outside like negativity on this team, but you had to be around them every day, whether it be practice or broadcasting? Like, what was the vibe for you as a broadcaster and in the building? Yeah, you know, it was interesting from the in, from from being on the inside because you could feel all the pressure from all the negativity around the country, mm-hmm. and but the team stayed focused. They really didn't. As a team, they didn't care what was being said outside. Um, Eric Spolster and his staff, I've said this many times because I coached with a lot of those guys. Mm-hmm. It's arguably the best teaching staff in the NBA. Okay. For example, one of the th- some of the things that Eric doesn't get credit for, he encouraged Chris Bosh to go out to the three-point line. Chris huh. Bosh was not a three-point shooter till he came to the Miami Heat. He, yeah. encouraged, he encouraged LeBron to go into the low post and get a low post game. Mm-hmm. Why would you limit yourself just to the perimeter? And so he did all these different things. Uh, people don't realize also that when Dwayne Wade came into the NBA, he didn't have a jump shot. Yeah. His first year in the league, he averaged about 17 and a half a game. He was great at going to the rim, great finisher and all of that. After his rookie year, after he came back from uh, Greece, when he played in the 2004 Olympics where the, the Americans won the bronze medal, he yeah. went in the gym for four weeks, five days a week, four four weeks in September with Coach Spolster, who was the assistant at the time. And they worked on his balance because he kept he kept falling a lot when he went to the basket. And people thought his career was going to be shortened because of it, yeah. his rookie year. And then he, he developed, in, in every jump shot, there's three things that have to happen. You've got to mm-hmm. bend your knees and get lift. you got mm-hmm. to get extension with your shooting arm and follow through. Mm-hmm. Dwayne, Dwayne Wade did not get any extension on his shot. He was like slinging it halfway up. So they worked on, Coach Spolster worked on him getting that extension on his arm. They did it every day, a couple hours a day, five days a week for a month. He became a better shooter. And when he could shoot the ball, how do you stop him? He was one of the best at going to the basket, right or left. And, you know, mostly people don't realize also being a righty, he was much more comfortable and, and he was great going right, but he was unbelievable going left in his career. Yeah. And when once he added the jump shot, he was an all-star. Every year after that, he averaged over 22 a game until the latter part of his career. And and that's why he and, and Eric Spolster created a bond because of all the work they did together after Dwayne's rookie year. And so that, that you know, I think Dwayne appreciates all the work that his, his uh, that that eventually his head coach did with him. That that's actually a really amazing story about D Wade because you know you only hear like certain things about how like and the whole organization itself about how you know you only get a certain image and it's kind of cool hearing from you like you know that Wade was in the gym five days a week working on the fact that he had no jump shot. I remember him at Marquette. Basically, he was just a slasher with like ridiculous explosiveness. But you know, have you noticed as he got older, his career he was just this amazing like shooter as he got older and his game had to change. And the Chris Bosh Nuggets actually really cool too <laughs> because I remember I like I'm, I'm I'm geeking out a little bit because I love 
basketball strategy and all this stuff and hearing how like LeBron, who's now like known for his post game, it was because of Eric Spolstra. So that's yeah. really cool. Let me tell you something. I think Chris Bosh is the most underrated great player of his era. Thank you. People do not realize how great a player Chris Bosh was. He and, and also how, how unselfish he was too. When wow, when he came, first came to the Heat, here he was the man for seven years in Toronto. Mm-hmm. He was he was impossible to guard. I remember when we were announcing the games and they would isolate him on the left side of the floor. There was no way you could stop him. He might miss the shot, but he was going to get a good shot off. He was going to go to the rim. He was going to go to the foul line. When he came to Miami, he became the third wheel. Mm-hmm. And he sacrificed his game for the good of the team. And people interpreted that as him not being that good. And they started to criticize him a little bit. It's not the big three. Well, they, 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 were, they couldn't be more wrong. The guy was a great, great player. Um, I've said this many times to in private to, to groups that I speak to before games, season ticket holders, fans, mm-hmm. that to me the biggest blow over the last five years was not LeBron leaving the Heat. When he left the Heat, we were still a championship caliber team. Yes. Because we had Wade, we had Bosch, and, and they if Chris Bosch didn't get the problem with the blood clots, mm-hmm. that one year Year, I think it was the year or two after LeBron left, we lost in the seventh, the seventh game to Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Toronto went to the Eastern Finals that year. Mm-hmm. If Chris Bosh played on that team, you got to feel that Miami would have gotten by Toronto. And here we would have played a uh, LeBron James led Cleveland team for the right to go to the NBA Finals. We had the, 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 the championship pedigree. Mm-hmm. We had Wade, we had Bosh, we had the coaching. We had we might have got, attracted another guy or two to come to the Heat and try to uh, chase a championship. So to me, the biggest blow in the last five years was not LeBron leaving, but Chris Bosh getting the blood clot because he would he would he would have really shined without LeBron there. Oh yeah, and I always loved Chris Bosh, and I always loved his game because you know I looked at him as kind of a a similar to my favorite player I mentioned before is Kevin Garnett, maybe a little less intense like in just just the brutal as how KG was, but I love Chris Bosch's game and he was dominant in Toronto for the entire time he was there, but he had no supporting cast whatsoever from the year he got drafted. I think the year he got drafted, I think Vince Carter got traded to New Jersey or it was the year after. And after that, it was basically him, a bunch of international guys and he made them a relevant team until he got to Miami. And I think that's one of the things people look at when they, I think one thing that people always underestimate when they have these big three teams together is that, Oh, like, you know, LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love, Kevin Love is a disgusting basketball player. He's very good at what he does. He's a good back to the basket guy can shoot threes. He was the man in Minnesota goes to Cleveland. He still is in Cleveland and basically sat back to LeBron James and and, uh, Kyrie Irving. So I think it's a credit to Chris Bosh how he essentially changed his game up to fit that system. And I think it's also a credit to Eric Spolstra, who taught this man essentially how to extend his game and make him even more useful to help Miami win two championships. No uh, doubt. That's true. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So last thing here, you are now uh, – you've always been working with the Heat doing these great basketball camps. I, of course, one of my coworkers, Sylvia – 
ranted about it for like five minutes and she said it was an amazing camp and me i went to a couple basketball camps up by here when i was a kid i you know i love the sport but you uh the heat are doing something new and you uh you like talk about it a little bit yeah we we when they when they told me they wanted to reassign me to do community work Mm -hmm. uh, a year and a half ago my my vision was you know i was a high school teacher for 15 years in new york and um what I wanted to do was start an anti-bullying campaign. We call it the Youth Empowerment Program. Yes. We have a we have a Junior Heat program that's going on a couple of years now, where we have we're getting all of the youth of South Florida that play mm-hmm. basketball, all of the leagues, all of the clubs, AAU teams. We're getting them all under one umbrella, the Junior Heat. As mm-hmm. an extension of that, we're also starting a uh, an extension of the of the uh, Youth Empowerment Program. We're going to we're starting and we're getting we're going starting to go high gear now after the Labor Day, uh, an anti-bullying campaign. It took me a year to get my feet wet. I bought some books. I read the Internet, talked mm-hmm. to a lot of people. I knew it would take a year to, to finally get it to the point where we're going to go into every middle school and every high school in Dade and Broward counties. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it doesn't matter. And we're going to tackle anti-bullying. We're going to tackle bullying and we're going to try to make a dent in the community. With the Miami Heat behind it, with our with our you know our guys are going to adopt the sister cities. Uh, we've got a whole program that we've we've uh, set up. We're we're partnering with a couple of groups, one in Miami, one in New York, and we're going to get the job done. And we're going to make a big dent in the bullying problem that that occurs in high schools and middle schools here in South Florida. So I'm really excited about that, and um, we, we we're going to be in high gear in another week or two. That's that's an that's an amazing thing to hear because as somebody who experienced a lot of that kind of stuff and I went you know I'm a 24 year old kid it's I'm only uh, my 10 year reunion isn't for another two years in high school so basically that's a good thing especially for a big organization with athletes and you know you have in like a big name team like the Heat around that Dade and Broward County and you know if it's is it, as it keeps running well and it's successful you're gonna see hopefully a lot of other organizations around that area try to lop on and help out and team up. I don't even know if it would be the Dolphins or, like, you know, the, the Marlins. But it's it's a good thing to start. It's a good grassroots thing to start it around basketball. It's a, it's a positive thing these kids can involve themselves with. Instead of exposing themselves to doing something like bullying, which is, just doesn't help anybody in the situation whatsoever, either the bully or the bullied person. But, Tony, this was an amazing interview. I had a blast talking to you today. You got me so geeked out talking about strategy and basketball history. I love this, and I know my listeners are going to enjoy the hell out of this as well. This is actually the first of my new series I'm launching through our podcast about uh, doing a long-form conversation with a guest, and it was a blast to do today. Sir, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Jared. Thank you. And go Heat. You got it, man. Thanks for listening to the Corner Booth Podcast. Be sure to check us out on Instagram and on Twitter at Corner Booth Pod.